Our lesson this morning is a continuation of last week's lesson. If you remember, uh, last week we talked about five things that God cannot do. Uh, We talked about how that God cannot sin, God cannot lie, God cannot ignore sin, God cannot save you any other way but by Jesus Christ, and God cannot save those who refuse to believe. Uh, This uh, lesson this morning is a continuation of that, and the lesson this morning, once again, is a very simple lesson like last week's lesson. Once again, this lesson is a lesson like last week's lesson that is to emphasize some very basic points that perhaps you already are aware of, but we need to reemphasize these points, not only for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, but because there are sometimes some people that need to be hearing these particular points for the first time, and they need to respond to it. So last Sunday we talked about the things that God cannot do. Uh, today we're going to be talking about five things God does not know. Five things that God does not know. Now, I firmly believe in the omniscience of God. In other words, that God is an all-knowing God. The passage that was read for us a few moments ago by Mike from Psalms 139 reminds us of the fact that there is nowhere that we can go that God is not there. There's no way for us to hide from God. There's no way that we can go to some part of the world where God's not there. God is everywhere. So if God is everywhere, then he knows everything. There is not a thing that God does not know. I heard a story a long time ago about a little boy that was going out of town on vacation. And um, as he was uh, leaving uh, the house to go on vacation, he said, Goodbye, bedroom. Goodbye, house. He got in the car and they started driving down the road. And he said, Goodbye, neighbors, where Mr. Smith lives. Goodbye, grocery store, where Mr. Jones works at. And as he drove by the church, he says, goodbye, church, and goodbye, God. Well, it doesn't work that way. God is everywhere. And because God is everywhere, God knows everything. There's not a thing that God does not know. God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. But yet, as we talked about last week, there are some things, the truth of the matter is, there are some things that God does not know. And so we're going to spend some time talking about five things this morning that God does not know to help emphasize some very important points that need to be re-emphasized. First of all, this morning I want you to think about the fact that God does not know a sin that he does not hate. God does not know a sin that he does not hate. We pointed out this scripture last Sunday, but Proverbs chapter uh, 6 and verse 16 reminds us that there are six sins that God hates and seven are an abomination to him. There are things that God hates and the thing that God hates is sin. And you can go back and look at the list of sins that were listed there in that particular passage. The thing that is important to understand is the, word, uh, the number seven is used there as an abomination to point out the fact that this is the completeness that God hates all sin. We are reminded in Psalm 45 and verse 7 that God hates wickedness. 
And we're reminded in um, Psalms 95 and verse 10 that if we love God, then we also are going to hate evil. God hates sin. Now, we need to also understand and appreciate the fact that even though you and I tend to categorize sin and put more emphasis on some sin than other sins, God hates absolutely all sin. Uh, We tend to look at sin in different colors, if you will. We sometimes think about a lie being either a white lie or a black lie, or we think about one sin being a very grievous sin or that sin not being so bad. In fact, as we look at other people, we look at their sins, and we always tend to think that their sins are worse than our sins. Uh, We're sinners, but our sin is not as bad as their sins. It's very easy for us to judge other people sometimes and think about how that they are a worse sinner than we are. But we need to understand and appreciate the fact there's something that God does not know, and that is that there is not a sin that God does not hate. We are reminded... In James chapter 2 and verse 10, how that if we fail the law in one point, even if we have kept the entire law of Moses, but we failed it in one point, it's like we have failed the entire law. In other words, we may have committed the littlest, smallest sin that we can think of if there is such a thing. But as far as God is concerned, it's like you have violated the entire law of Moses. In other words, maybe you said an unkind word to someone or you had an an evil thought in your head. As far as God is concerned, and James states this in the text, you're right in line with, with the murderers, the robbers, the liars, whatever you can think of, the worst sin you can even imagine. And it's all in the same category. Because there's not a sin that God does not hate. So we need to be very aware of the fact that if you have committed any sin in your life, and I know you have, that God hates that sin. And the reason why he hates that sin is because what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 59, beginning at verse 1. Speaking for God, he says, God making the statement says, My hand is not so short that I cannot save you, nor is my ear so dull of hearing that I can't hear you. But your iniquities have caused you to be separated from me, and your sins have caused me to hide my face from you that I cannot hear you. Folks, that's why God hates sin. Any sin at all, causes us to be separated from God. And there's nothing worse in the world than being separated from God Almighty. We need to understand and appreciate that. And it's all based upon the fact that there is something that God does not know. He does not know a sin that He does not hate. Let's add a second point to this. And I'm so thankful for this point. But also when we think about what God does not know, we think about the fact that there is not a sinner that he does not love. You know, when we think about other people, we, we think about them in, in the category of, uh, well, they're easy to love or not easy to love. But thanks be to God that God is not that way. That God loves all of us equally. Uh, 
Sometimes when we are uh, dealing with people, we uh, maybe think that, well, they're nice people, so I'll care about them, or they're not nice people, uh, and I'll care about them. But God looks at it this way. What does 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 say? That God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. We tend to put love in certain categories. For example, this morning, I love all of you. But I'll be honest with you, I kind of love my two granddaughters more. Why? Because they're precious, they're innocent, they're beautiful. But yet at the same time, when God looks at us, He doesn't look at us and He, does, and he doesn't see someone who is precious He doesn't see someone who is beautiful. He doesn't see someone who is innocent. But instead, he sees something that is ugly. He sees something that is guilty. He sees something that is hateful because God hates all sin. But then you have the beautiful words of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that says that God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Is it no wonder then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19 says that the love of Christ passes knowledge. It's hard for us to fathom how can someone love someone that is so ugly when God knows every single thing about me, when God knows my inner thoughts, He knows every single thing about me, but yet He loves me so much that just boggles the mind. Not only does God not know a sin that he does not hate, but thanks be to God, he does not know a sinner that he does not love. We need to be thankful for that this morning. Let's add a third thing to this. A sinner he does not want to save. God wants to save each and every one of us. Once again, we tend to look at people and we categorize them. We uh, try to think of them as people that maybe might respond to the gospel or maybe not respond to the gospel. In other words, we might have a co-worker or a neighbor and they think, well, we might think in our minds, well, they're just so involved with their denominationalism, there's no hope for me to save them. Or maybe we know somebody who's so caught up in materialism and and the things of this world, we think, well, there's no point in trying to save them. Or maybe we see somebody that's so caught up in their sin and, and we may think, well, there's no point trying to talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need to make sure we understand and appreciate the fact that God doesn't look at people that way. There are people in this entire world that God wants to save because as we've already talked about, there is not a single person on this earth that God does not want to repent. He wants all to come to repentance. John 3.16, we hear it so often that it almost becomes trite. We don't get the full impact of it. But still, the words there ring true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
There we see the greatest love the world has ever seen, and we also see the greatest response, that because of the love of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us should believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and have life eternal. When it comes to God, there's two things we need to understand very vividly in our minds. The first thing is God's ability to save. And that's not that hard to believe. I mean, He is God Almighty. He is the one who is able to save each and every one of us. He has that ability and power. But the second thing, and this is where we sometimes struggle, the second thing is, is God's willingness to save. God wants to save each and every one of us. But yet we struggle with that because of the fact that we look at ourselves and we think in our mind, how in the world could God save a sinner like me? Well, folks, let me remind you again, there's something that God does not know. And it's simply this. God does not know a sinner that he does not want to save. Well, let's add a fourth thing to this. As I said, these are simple but need to be reinforced. God does not know a better way to save mankind than the way that he provided. We touched on this some last week. We understand and appreciate the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh through the Father except by me. And so we have Jesus Christ uttering this great commission there, Mark 16, beginning at verse 15, where he says, Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. There is the way that God told his apostles that the world was going to be saved. He was going, wanted them to go and preach the gospel. And that gospel involved, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Is it no wonder then that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching that very first gospel sermon, and he came to the invitation of his sermon, if you will, in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus in whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says when they heard this, they were preaching in their hearts, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. In verse 38 and in verse 41, it says, And they that gladly received his word were then baptized. Verse 47 goes on, talks about how that the Lord added them to the church because of the response of those their obedience to the words of Peter. You see, God has no better way to save mankind other than faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. Those are the only ways. But yet in the world today, there are those who think they can be saved saved other ways. There are those who try to be saved without the cross, but God knows no better way. There are those who try to be saved without the church, but God knows no better way. There are those who try to be saved without baptism, but God knows no better way. God's way is the only way. And we need to understand and appreciate the fact that if we are sinners and we want to see ourselves saved, we need to be saved by the way that God has provided. 
because God knows no better way. And then finally, one last point, and then the lesson is yours. God does not know a better time than right now to be saved. God does not know a better time than right now to be saved. It's my fear that sometimes people put off being saved, even though they know they are sinners, even though they know that God hates sin, even though they have been taught the way of salvation, they know they need to respond to it, but they put off being saved because of the fact that they feel like they just don't know enough. I just don't know enough about the church. I just don't know enough about the Bible. I just don't know about enough about enough things that I don't feel like I'm, I'm adequate to respond. Now, don't want to discount the fact that a person needs to understand what they're doing and a person needs to understand the commitment that is involved. But we also need to understand and appreciate the fact that you don't need to know everything before you become a Christian. In fact, all you need to know is that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you are a sinner and you want to be saved based upon your faith in Jesus Christ and what he asks you to do. That's all you need to know. Another place where Jesus gave the great commission there, Matthew chapter 28 beginning at verse 19, you remember what he told his apostles there? He said to go teach and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all things which I have committed unto you. In other words, you teach them enough so that you can get them to obey the gospel, being baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then there is more teaching that takes place after that. It's interesting as you study the book of Acts, and you look at the conversion stories that are pictured in the book of Acts, think about how that in every single story that we have recorded of a specific group of people, how many sermons did they hear before they responded to the gospel? Think about that. Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people responded. How many sermons had they been to? How many invitations did they hear? How many times did they hear a preacher preach? They heard Peter preach that one and only sermon and they were convicted that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and they were sinners and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How many sermons did the Ethiopian eunuch hear? You remember him and Philip in the chariot in Acts chapter 8. And the eunuch has his Bible open at Isaiah 53, and he just simply asks Philip, who's traveling with him, is this talking about himself or talking about some other man? And the text says that Philip started from that passage and preached unto him Jesus. Munich just heard one sermon from Philip. First gospel sermon he had ever heard in his entire life but he knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and he knew that he was a sinner that needed to be saved. And so as they rode along, the eunuch said to Philip, See, here is water. What doth hindereth me to be baptized? And the text tells us that both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, and then he came up out of the water, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. 
How many sermons did Lydia hear? Paul and his company found Lydia and and a group of women uh, praying down by a river. And Paul came to them and preached one gospel sermon to them. And her entire household were saved. In Acts chapter 10, we have the story of the first Gentile convert. Peter came to this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius and preached just one sermon. And once again, what was the result? Cornelius realized that even though he had been following God his entire life, and he was pretty good at it, according to the text, he still understood that he was a sinner that needed to be saved, and the only way he was going to be saved is by Jesus Christ. What about that Philippian jailer over in Acts chapter 16? You remember how Paul and Silas were in prison, and how... As they were singing hymns, there was a great earthquake and the jailer thinking that all the prisoners had escaped and he was going to lose his life anyway because of uh, violating the trust that the Roman government had put in him. He was about to commit suicide, but Silas stopped him and said, no, I mean, Paul stopped him and said, no, we're all here. And the man realizing that he was at the lowest point in his life and he needed something better than what he had, and realized that Paul and Silas, from listening to their singing and looking at their attitudes and their Christianity, realized that they had something that he did not have. And he said to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And of course, Paul and Silas preached unto him about Jesus Christ and how that, they need, that he needed to believe in him. And it said, in the same Hour of the night. Now keep in mind that the earthquake happened at 12 o'clock midnight. So the same hour of the night after the Philippian jailer had heard just one sermon and he was convicted that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and how that he was a sinner that needed to be saved. He and his household that same hour of the night were baptized. My point is simply this. You don't have to hear sermon after sermon after sermon. All you need to hear is a sermon that convicts your heart of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you're a sinner that desperately needs to be saved. And so this morning, God does not know a better time than right now to be saved. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, He says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. God does not know a sin that he does not hate. God does not know a sinner that he does not love. God does not know a sinner that he does not want to save. God does not know a better way to save mankind than the way he provided. And God does not know a better time than right now to be saved. There's an old story that's been going around hundreds of years now, I guess, that preachers like to tell, and I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's one that's been passed around for a long time. A story about a boy who was walking down the street one day, and he came across a man that had a rusty old birdcage. And in that rusty old birdcage, there was all kinds of different birds, uh, field birds, And there was a man who was sitting beside that birdcage, and of course this caught the boy's attention, and he said 
to the man. He says, what's the deal with all these birds in these cages? Are these your pets? And the man kind of snarled at the boy. He says, oh, no, they're not my pets. There's some old field birds that I caught. You see, I would put out traps for them. I would uh, put out bait for them. And as they tried to get closer to the food I put out or whatever uh, trap I'd set up, I would take a net or something and I'd capture them birds and I'd put them in this old rusty cage. I tried all kinds of different things to catch them and I caught a bunch of them, as you can see. And the little boy said, well, what are you going to do with them? He says, well, I'm going to have some fun with them. I'm going to get a stick and I'm going to poke it through the cage and I'm going to uh, terrify and hurt these birds. And then I'm going to see, because I'm messing with them, I can see if I can get them to fight. And the ones I can't get to fight, I'll probably just kill. And the little boy, being tender-hearted, looked at the birds in the cage and thought about how helpless they were and how innocent they were. And he asked the man, is there any way I can buy that cage and those birds? The man thought for a few moments, and he said, well, you know, it's a pretty nice cage, and there's a lot of birds in there, and I worked really hard to get those birds in there. Um, I think that I need at least $50 from you. And the little boy knew he didn't have $50. He said, Mr., I've got $10 in my pocket that my mom gave me for my lunch money this entire week. That's all I have. That's all I can give you. And the man says, that's the best you can do? And he says, that's the best I can do. That's all I've got. I'm giving you everything I have. And the man said, okay, I'll, I'll sell them to you for $10 if that's all you've got. That's the very best you have. And so the boy, little boy gave the man the $10 and the man handed over the cage. The boy walked about a hundred feet away from the man. He opened up the door of the cage, shook the cage just a little bit, and let every bird fly away. That story has been told for maybe hundreds of years to illustrate the fact that when God looked down from heaven, he saw some people that were trapped in the rusty cage of sin. And how that Satan had done everything that he could to, to bait us, to tempt us, to trap us, so he could put us in this cage of sin. And how he was going to keep us in this cage of sin, and he was going to torment us, and prod us, and hurt us, and do everything he could to destroy us and kill us. God comes to Satan and says, What can I give you to let me have those birds? to let me have those souls. And Satan says, you've got to give me the very best you've got. You've got to give me your only begotten son. Jesus died for us, as Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us, while we were yet sinners. But God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you have a need this morning, won't you come as together we stand and sing.